one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health. Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm in the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the conversation. Today I have with me an old friend, Tom Noser. Tom is the president and founder of Fortune's Path, a multidisciplinary consultancy in product marketing and sales. Tom helped grow one of healthcare's first SaaS companies from a million users to over 4 million while quadrupling revenue and achieving a 10x improvement in the stock price. He founded Fortune's Path to help SaaS companies grow rich by pursuing virtue. Tom lives in Nashville, Tennessee, my hometown, with his wife, Anna, and his 17-year-old pug, Margaret. And Tom, you got a, a new book out yeah, and a lot going on and a great newsletter that you send out daily with some really good curation of links. So Thank we'll you. send that in the show notes, but you and I have gotten to know each other over the years. Nashville, not as small a town as it used to be, but we right. bumped into each other at a happy hour event Yeah, pre-COVID. I was on your show and mm-hmm. when I heard about the book coming out, I thought it'd be a good opportunity to have you come on and talk a little bit about what you're doing. Well, thank you so much. No, it's great. It's great being here. Yeah, the book has been kind of the challenge and joy of my life. And uh, it, it came out of my experience in recovery, as well as in uh, product management and business. And so I took the 12 steps of recovery, and I applied them to business settings. So for instance, like the first step of, uh, of recovery is to admit we're powerless over our addiction, that our life has become unmanageable. And the first step in the, if I could rename the book, I'd call it the big book of business. So the first step in there is decide what you can and can't control. And I think that's a, that is an area where we spin our wheels a lot. And it goes from everything from 
hiring and giving feedback and sales process and development process and really sort of it, it touches every part of a business uh, end to end. How long have you been in recovery? About 30 years. So I, I was um, uh, a student at Vandy and I went to Vanderbilt Health and uh, I said, I have this like thing in my throat. I feel like I have a hairball. I can't get rid of it. And they said, well, are you under any stress? I said, well, my grades suck. I hate my girlfriend and my parents think I'm an alcoholic. But other than that, things are good. And uh, so that was the beginning of the journey. No specific moment of clarity? Oh, boy. Good question. I knew that things were bad. Well, I, I was say I knew I hated myself. That was that was like a given. And I would say when someone told me I had a had a problem with addiction, I didn't deny it. There wasn't a like, oh, that's bullshit. It was almost like, well, of course. And then began attending a you know twelve step group, and it was this experience of I didn't think anybody else thought like that. You know, I thought I was the only one. And uh, so I would say the moment of clarity came then. And so we talked about this a little bit before we went live. Yeah. This concept of, you know, empathy. And, and I think that ties into self-hatred in many ways, which yeah, a, a lot of successful men, especially experience. I know I've gone through it myself. How do you correlate that journey that you went on personally with, you said it was part of the impetus for the book. Yeah. I mean, could you maybe draw that line between that experience and then how you get into sales and SaaS and yeah. applying a technology in today's environment a little bit for us? Yeah. I, w- I would say that the, the, the foundation of my life as an adult uh, comes from the steps of recovery and going through that process. And so it was something that I um, didn't consciously realize I was bringing into work. And for, you know, 25 years, I didn't tell anybody. I was concerned that this would negatively impact my career. I was, you know, just, I had been sort of schooled, whatever you do, don't, don't, don't tell anybody that. And I, I think that idea is from a different era and isn't relevant anymore. And it's also such a, such a, core part of my story that I can't give myself completely to the relationships I have with people at work if I try to make sure nobody ever finds out. Now, I don't, I don't, when I was early, I would tell anybody, you know, like the first year and I'm on a college campus and telling people and people would forget, which was a gift because they didn't care. And uh, so I, I don't try to like, pound the drum about this in a work environment. I think that's really inappropriate. Uh, But there are principles that I've learned there about honesty, openness, and willingness about, you know, saying, I don't know. You know, I think one of the key things of of, uh, recovery is that skepticism of of saying, what do I know? Um, Those are things that have been really important to me in a business setting. The other thing is service. So one of the uh, principles of recovery is service to others. That's really, really important in sales. When I talk to people about Fortune's Path, I don't want to talk to them about any of our features, any of our process, any of our capabilities until they want to know about that stuff. 
I want to know what's going on with them. What problems do they have? What challenges are they facing? What are they afraid of? And I, because I need to win their trust, but it's also self-interest rightly understood, which is if I love someone, if I'm going to love someone in a work setting, I have to see that person really, really clearly. I think that's what love is, is that we see each other really clearly and we accept each other for that. Uh, and if I can offer someone that service, that's worth paying for. You know, if you're a trusted advisor in, in the truest sense of someone feels that you love them and you accept them and you have experience to share with them, they will pay for that. And, and I honestly didn't know you were in recovery, mm-hmm. but now this, the 12 steps outlined in the book, yeah. I, I assume that is relevant oh, yeah. to, okay. Yeah, it's all, it's, it's. It's me stealing. Um, like uh, the second step is, well, the third step in recovery is turn our, turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand Him. And and a third step in the book is make a decision to love our customers. So that's what I what I would do is sort of take the principle, and then reframe that principle in a way that was uh, more relevant to business, and sort of also I, I tried to take the whole. God thing out of it. Not that I feel that they're that, you know, I, I have, I'm ambivalent about the concept of God, but I didn't want that to be, you know, and uh, something that got in the way of people being able to get into the book. I want to get into something near and dear to my heart with you, which mm-hmm. is sales. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it seems like oftentimes, especially in financial services or professional services, it can be a, a dirty word, a four <laughs> letter word. Oh yeah. The best way that I've heard it it described as, you know, marketing marketers are like covering the air, right? Yeah. They're 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 mm-hmm. the air force. Yeah. Sales are the infantry, right? On the yeah. on the ground doing the dirty work. We share a marketer, somebody that mm-hmm. helps us yeah, yeah. with our marketing conceptually, but I'm an inveterate salesperson. Like that's just what I am. You can call it different things, but I'm pitching a widget. And in return for the widget, I'm asking for time and resources usually capital. Could you talk about how through your experience and, and lessons that you outlined the book, why people get sales so wrong? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, we approach from a very, very selfish point of view. And I, I don't mean that um, salespeople are trained by their organizations to be selfish. Um, there is absolutely nothing selfish about the pursuit of excellence. And the best salespeople to me are like the best athletes. They're grinders. They have natural talent, but they understand that you've got to put in the reps to be able to really achieve. The other thing that's sort of in in common with athletes, I'll strain the metaphor, part of sales is bringing happiness and joy to others. Because if what you're selling has real value, it's an act and that real, you there's a, a multiplying effect. If, if I invest X, I get 10X or 5X or 100X or whatever. That's a form of generosity. I'm bringing you into this opportunity, which can, you know, in some cases, change your life or at least make it better. Maybe remove an annoyance or, you know, there, there are lots of things we'll pay for. Not everything has to have a 100X return to be worth the investment. A lot of things are, I'll gladly pay someone to clean my house. You know, that saves me five hours and 
that's a huge, you know, it's a gift to me when I go up and I see, oh my God, they clean the counter. I don't have to do that. You know, and um, so I think we get sales wrong because we think about it from our own perspective of what I'm trying to get out of sales. Boy, I really need to make my number. You know, I hope this, this guy's, you know, he won't return my call. You know, what a, what a pain in the butt. You know, it's like, why, don't, why does anybody open my emails? Why, why can't I get any leads for marketing? You know, those, you know, why is product so slow in delivering the next feature? That's a selfish perspective. If I'm actually, like one of the best sales guys I ever met said that when he interviews for sales, he's interviewing for curiosity. He wants to make sure that the, the people on his team have a passion to understand the business of their prospects, that they become knowledgeable about the workings, the challenges of that prospect, and not just in the context of how that moves their own sales process along, because you can see that, you know, you can, we know each other well enough that you can tell when someone's just interested in the only reason they're asking you these questions is because it's part of their script to get them to the close. Uh, and so I think we get sales wrong because we approach it selfishly. So the next logical question is mm -hmm. these organizations are doing sales training wrong, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, part of me, I never went through any formal training. There's certainly firms that you hear of that have mm -hmm. you know, incredible training pedigrees. Yeah. South, Southwestern companies in town would be one that would come yeah. to mind. Yeah. I mean, within maybe the SaaS context, mm -hmm. like who's doing this right? What does that look like? <laughs> and maybe, you know, are most people just doing it wrong when it comes to sales training? Yes, I think so. You know, I think one of the, one of the reasons you hire sales training is because you don't know how to solve the problem. And so you're looking for a simple solution. And uh, so you're like, oh, these guys have a methodology. We'll use that methodology. And there's nothing wrong with a methodology. You know, it's like there's nothing so practical as a good theory. But I love, there's an old quote from Ted Williams where he said, that, never let anybody monkey with your swing. And I think that you have to understand as a salesperson, what is the process that works for you? How, you know, because you, you're going to have to put those reps in. You need to be doing something that feels natural to you. Not like every day I go and I follow a recipe. I make the same cake over and over again every day. You won't be able to put in the work necessary because sales is a lot of work. It's a grind. So you need to lean into that and find what in the process you enjoy. And hopefully you enjoy learning about your prospects. A no in sales is just as good as a yes. It's the second best. It's not just as good, but it's the second best answer. I would much rather have a fast no than be with someone for years and years and years and never get a close. You know, I've made a friend, but I haven't earned a customer. And my, my, I want to do both. I really, I really want to do both. But if I have to choose, I'd rather have a customer than a friend in a business setting. So I think that um, people get this wrong because they're looking for a one-size solution that will just kind of, okay, we can take, as you say, like the Southwestern, we take the challenger sales model and drop it into our organization. Maybe, you know, but don't monkey with people's swings. If you've got a high producer who doesn't follow that model, 
Why in God's name would you tell them to change their swing? Instead, you want to give them intelligence about the market, about their products that they can use and about the challenges that their prospects are facing so they know the next right thing to say in a conversation. I mean, sales is to a degree virtuous manipulation. You are trying to steer a conversation in a particular direction. That's some reason why, you know, a lot of salespeople practice selective listening. You know, it's like, I, I know you said no, but I, I'm going to pretend I didn't hear that. And I'm going to ask you again. Yeah, sometimes that works. It works. And sometimes that works in all relationships. It's not like the first club out of the bag, in my opinion. You know, it's like you ought to be really trying to understand, is this a fit for both sides? So that requires a custom solution. That requires understanding the state of that organization, how mature are they as is, is their product, where are they in their product life cycle, what's the competitive landscape look like, who else is, are they running into when they go out, is their pricing optimized in a way where they're not confusing their customers, are they developing habits of adoption, habits of buy-up in their offering? This is super duper important in SaaS. Is your pricing and your packaging ideal? Because there's a lot of people who can be good salespeople and they get up to the very end and they start to, you know, like, all right, we're near the contract negotiation and they get to the pricing model and everything just goes to hell because somebody built a pricing model without ever thinking about customers and without ever thinking about a salesperson who has to describe that pricing model to someone, you know, they sort of cooked it up and that, that can be a real detriment. So when you're examining the entire sales process, you have to think about that whole, the product lifecycle lays over that really, really in a, in a very important way. I, I actually don't think every organization has to have somebody called, quote, product manager, but you do need to be practicing that discipline. And the core of that discipline is empathy for customers. Want to learn more about investing in alternatives? Get started by joining the Capital Club, where you'll get exclusive access to alternative investment opportunities premium content and education, and an affinity peer-to-peer network of industry professionals. You can sign up by going to our website at www.excelsiorgp.com. I agree with pretty much everything you said. I I think the metaphor is cliche and a bit hackneyed, but true when it comes to Mm -hmm. sports. I was a college college athlete Mm -hmm. and have talked to a lot of other alums and the the through lines are are pretty similar, right? I mean, you... Mm -hmm. You put your time in. There's you. There's a lot of failure. Yeah. There's a lot of teamwork. You have to be coachable, but yet you know independent in many ways. Yeah. And so I, when I hire people, I love to see that they played a team sport in school, yeah. especially if it was a sport that doesn't really have any prospect of you getting paid for eventually. Right. right. Just do it right. because you love the experience. Right. Like playing Division three sports all four years. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a reflection of your character in many ways, right? Like that's oh, yeah. something that you really cared a lot about and you do it for the sake of doing it, which I think is an important distinction to make. Yeah. I, and I think the best salespeople also do it for the sake of doing it. Um, that they're, they want to learn, you know, they, they want to be in the, um, they want to develop those relationships and, you know, they're, it's, it's also really good if you feel like, well, the product I offer has real value. 
I mean, one of the things about what, what you're doing is, is that it's all quantifiable. There is no way to hide at the end of the day. You know, these, these properties are going to have a given return. And that is totally measurable. It's a very honest playing field. Right. But what's, what's not, and I'm turning 40 next month. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And out of the many things that I've learned, you're right. There's nowhere to hide, right? Like my coach mm-hmm. would, t- would say the tape mm-hmm. don't lie, right? Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you look at the tape and you missed mm-hmm. the play, mm-hmm. you're out of position. It is what it is. You can't yeah. go back and fix it. Mm-hmm. But what is interesting about how I've approached things now is the deals are what they are, right? Some mm-hmm. are going to be great. Some are going to be mm-hmm. good. And some are going to have challenges. And it's going to be mm-hmm. very transparent. Mm-hmm. But what you can control is the investor experience and the investor journey, which I think is almost as, I mean, obviously we all want the deals to do well, but I think it's Mm -hmm. almost as important as the returns. And we've mapped all this out. And I think part of my maturation process has been realizing it's not just getting that conversion and getting a yes. Yeah. It's how do we get there? Because that I think will determine what the relationship with the end user or the client looks like. Yeah, I have a I have a friend who uh, has a hedge fund that invests in small banks, and he's described his business as he's a front runner of consolidation. And when I was talking to him about who invested with him, he says, "Well, I want to make sure that the guys who invest with me can one afford to lose their money and laugh, and two are there to have fun." Now he they also want to make money because making money is fun, but he wants to attract a kind of investor who will enjoy that process, who will enjoy that journey. And so he's, he's also selective about who he allows to invest in his funds because he doesn't want investors who are going to his, you know, make his life miserable. So this have fun, get rich concept that you yeah. discussed, <laughs> is that, is that what this, is that what that is or there's more to yes. it, I assume. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I think I think that um, there are ab- there are people in the world who um, have enormous wealth who are very unhappy. You know, I, I think one of them is pres- was president of the United States, and I think that wealth brings with it a set of responsibilities and burdens that are wildly underestimated. And even even people who didn't necessarily have to work for their wealth, that they were, you know, I, um, I, I'm very fortunate in who my parents were. I've made an excellent choice. And and so there, but I will say that one of the things that, you know, as a second generation person, that is a cost to me is that it robbed me of some of my ambition. And that ambition is coming out here later in my life. So when I was young, there was a sort of sense of, uh, I want to be a good father and I want to be a good husband. And you should ask my wife and children to, if I succeeded, I'm not qualified to answer. But by, you know, I, I could be unhappy or unfulfilled at work and live with it. And there's nothing, that's not a bad choice. It's not an immoral choice. As I'm, you know, aging, I'm, I'm you know, my early 50s, there is work I have left to do. And writing is it. You know, I, I wanted to be a writer when I was a kid. I, I dabbled with it. Now I'm trying to actually be a writer. I've written one book and working on a second one. And that's, that's what I want to do. And so I have these, that, some of that ambition. Uh, anyway, I kind of got down this rabbit hole about th- talking about the burden of wealth. Now, is it better to be rich than poor? 
hell yes. <laughs> it's like there's no, let's not kid ourselves. You know, there is no romanticism of poverty. I think that's total garbage. But the, um, uh, the get rich and have fun or have fun and get rich, they go to, they, they are, are they in opposition to each other? You know, it's like, well, if I'm going to get rich, that's probably not going to be a lot of fun. Or how do I do both of these at the same time? That's what I want in my life is both of those at the same time. And a lot of the story of, of wealth accumulation is it's misery. You know, you're, you're going you're gonna to be Scrooge and people will hate you and you'll, you'll hate yourself and you'll ruin your life. Not necessarily. I also, just as there are people who are wealthy and are miserable, I think there are people who are wealthy and have a lot of fun and really, really enjoy it. You know, I think David Geffen is probably a very happy rich guy. You know, that's why you post riding out the pandemic on my super yacht, you know, because you're that, you're a happy tone deaf guy, you know? And, uh, but that's, that's, I, I think though they get rich and the, and the have fun, you're going to have, you're going to balance those things in your life and decide what it means for you to be rich. How much is enough? What are the things that enrich your life? Money gives us choices. But it doesn't protect us from bad things happening to us. It just gives us more resources. Yeah, money gives us optionality and it mm-hmm. solves money problems, but mm-hmm. it's not a cure-all, right? No, no. So, you know, like um, I like to read um, old philosophy and um, Seneca is one of the guys I'm reading now. Seneca was very wealthy, but he had to kill himself because he fell out of favor with the emperor, Nero, who had been his pupil at one time. And he was drawn up in palace intrigue as everybody in those days were. And Nero lost faith in him. And he said, you got to go. They banished him at one point and he'd come back. And then they said, now you got to kill yourself. And, you know, we could look at the Russian oligarchs today, um, you know, the, among the very richest people in all of history. And they can't leave their country. Some of them, you know, they're, they're, getting up every day trying to figure out, you know, how much have I got and uh, can I get it? And they're hoping that the regime holds out and, you know, we don't have nuclear war and they get to go back to their lives. You know, are they as discomforted as the people of Kiev uh, who, you know, have rockets coming in on them? Nope. But they also aren't getting away scot-free. You know, I think that every time they meet with their boss, they have to wonder if he's lost faith in them and he's going to ask them to kill themselves. You know, so no, it's not a cure-all. Why do you think stoicism is so in vogue right now? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> stoicism is a philosophy to comfort the comfortable. You know, it's like they don't, there is no concept of social justice in stoicism. There's no concept of, you know, maybe this thing about the slaves is a bad idea. You know, there, it's, so I, I think it is something that we can, that you can kind of go into. And it does give you some immediate relief. There's some fantastic lines in it it's it's it, i find it to be really enjoyable interesting stuff but it's absolutely a philosophy to comfort the comfortable and so that's one of the reasons why i think it's in vogue because we're in an age of overabundance of comfort <laughs> yeah. i just want to make sure i'm yeah yeah, yeah. I, I don't think i don't think stoicism is like a hit with people who are whose lives are really difficult you know i don't have much contact with people who have uh, chronically ill children and don't know how they're going to keep those children in the medications that they require and also put food on their table. You know, I, I don't, I'm not 
around and don't hear about those parts of our society that have food insecurity, a whole house, home insecurity, health insecurity. Everybody I hang out with is relatively secure. Uh, and so stoicism, I think, is popular among my group because it does sort of address that, well, you already have all your necessities. How do you get peace of mind? And uh, so anyway, that's one reason why. I, I, I like the answer. I mean, you see this fact pattern of the successful entrepreneur or financial services person who gets into Ironmans. <laughs> like, <laughs> and yes. it's, it's cliched, but I mean, true. And it, it seems like the way, the way I look at it, and I love fitness. I'm a big believer mm -hmm. in it in terms of the mm -hmm. clarifying force. But there are extremes there that these people are searching for something. Yeah. Because they're, they're, they must not be getting it at work or at home. Yeah. And they're, they're looking, right, for that answer is the way I look at it. Yeah. I, I think um, one of the elements of people who, who get a lot of things done or who achieve a lot of stuff is they're restless. You know, there's the happy people don't make history, that old depressing cliche. And so I totally, your, your point about, um, you know, I've, I've conquered all these different worlds. Now it's time for me to do an Ironman. This is just, you know, it's like how I'm wired. This, I think why, go, to go back to the athletes analogy, why so many athletes really have a hard time with retirement. Some of them, you know, like I like Chipper Jones. He's like, I'm going to go hunt and hang out, you know, at the park every now and then. He seems pretty content. But then, you know, Michael Jordan to me seems like another wealthy, miserable person. And it's really hard for him to be out of that fight. And uh, so I think, yeah, pe people, uh, one of the most successful lawyers I ever met said, I'm, I'm a warrior. You know, he, he described himself that way. And so he, he liked the combat. He was drawn to the combat. And um, a, a quiet life um, was difficult for him. I think it is for a lot of people. Yeah, I was reflecting on this a little bit. I'm back on the road now, mm -hmm. traveling, not as much as I used to, but I've got a pretty busy spring ahead of me. Mm -hmm. And you can see the trap that you fall into of, as an entrepreneur, especially somebody who does biz dev and sales, when my market, you know, my total address level market is about 13.3 million people mm -hmm. today. Those are all the accredited mm -hmm. investors in America. Like there is no end, right? right. And so where right. do you where do you draw the line? What's reasonable? What's not? Is it seasonal? I mean, mm -hmm. I do have children and a wife. They're I, I'm not this work life balance thing. I don't think that's yeah. feasible. I think it's a, kind of a trap, honestly. But me too. You you do have to have some, and this is why I think people in our position like the Stoics because. I do think you need to have some hard lines, some groundings, mm -hmm. because otherwise you look into the abyss, then you just, it's looking back at you on that. Yeah. Uh, I think so. One of the, I mean, I've sort of dumped on stoicism a bit, but one of the things I do really like about it is that it has an emphasis on virtue, on, you know, the, the work of your life is you, your character. And so the, the same, I have an opportunity to exercise virtue in, in any setting, whether that's where I'm traveling and talking to investors and earning new business, or whether that's I'm a home, listening to my children, 
learning from them. My kids are adults and learning from my adult children is the most fun activity I have. They're so interesting. And uh, so having conversations, anyway, both of the, I have that opportunity to practice virtue in either place and, and sort of the, I don't know if this is historic, but it's like, well, wherever you go, there you are. And you have, um, so that, that the work of your character doesn't stop. Um, so there, uh, I can, my character is revealed to me in every circumstance, you know, whether that's um, in my home or in work or wherever, like to your point about, I don't believe in a work life separation either i want to be one person my life is whole not divided into little parts i'm not i don't want to be a compartmentalizer it works great for some people i mean it, uh, but it's not me what do you think you got right about raising kids oh boy <laughs> or you can start uh, with what you got wrong but... yeah 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 it's funny it's like i read a book a long time ago that said we we vastly over value the role of parents in a person's life and so i i um you know i have a uh an uncle who was orphaned and his first family was the marines and he became he was a veteran of the second world war and he became a um a very successful journalist and editor and um he had the most amazing funeral i'll ever go to for the people who attended and the sentiments that were expressed. And uh, so he had terrible parents and had a very rich life, you know, and, and, but about getting right with my kids, uh, I love them very much. And I think they have, they don't doubt that I love them very much. And so I'd say I got that right. I'm at a point now where my boys are nine and six and like my dad said, you know, the days are long, but the years are short. Yeah. And you, you know, you, you do the math and it's like, man, he's going to be out of the house in nine years. Right. Yeah. And what does that look like for him and for you coming to grips with my experience as a child? And it was interesting. I had generational cohort Mm -hmm. expert on the show Mm -hmm. last week, Chris DeSantis, really cool guy. Mm -hmm. And he said that, you know, these generational differences that divides that are talked a lot about in the news Mm-hmm. From a parenting construct, the way to think about it is we want to give our children what we thought was lacking in our childhood. Yeah, I totally agree with him. Totally. I mean, so I think um, so my, my father is a successful entrepreneur and he has said to me, I didn't really relate to you when you were kids. You know, I, as adults, I'm really like you. But it, as kids, I didn't really relate. He's an amazing father as a grown man. When uh, I was a, a boy, you know, we had, you know, there was something lacking. And so I've, I've definitely tried to give that to my children and tried to be present. So about that, you know, I'm really glad to hear you're saying, thinking about son's nine and in nine years, he's going to be out of the house. You know, it's, it is a, a, a cliche, but yeah, it's all every day. I mean, you only, you only get it once and they, uh, it's all amazing. I don't, I don't, think about birthdays or about you know graduations i think about giving them a bath i think about putting them to bed i think about how terrible we were at baseball together you know like <laughs> the way we suffered on t-ball you know I, th- I think about taking them to, to braves games and and about um just ordinary stuff going to the pool 
you know, those are uh, trying to be with them present in those moments. Like I'm a great admirer of my dog. And the reason why is she has tremendous powers of concentration. She is able to be present in a way that I'm not able to be present. And so I, I want to learn from her about how to be present like that with my kids. Coach, I play the cross in college and I'm, I'm coaching my, my boys now. And who knows, like, I really don't care if they continue to play moving mm-hmm. forward. I'm not one of those psycho parents, but, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny because in the majority of his everyday, my nine-year-old, especially my expertise as a, you know, private equity, commercial real estate professional recovering mm-hmm. attorney mm-hmm. has very little bearing on his life. But this is a skill set that I can impart to him, right? And so having those that time together where I can show him what works and what doesn't work, we can spend a couple hours on the weekend together doing something outside in a team setting. Mm-hmm. It's a total joy. Like I could, I would do it all day, right? Yeah. It's, it's, just, think- it's pretty incredible. And it's like yeah. mediocre little kid lacrosse, right? But yeah, that time, to your point, when I look back on it, I mean, those are the things that I'll probably remember the most, more so than the, you know, artificial moments that, you know, Hallmark creates for us. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that uh, the other thing that's, that's really interesting to me is how much more important I think that stuff is to us as parents than it is to our children. It's, it's wrong for me to have an expectation that my kids are going to, that this will be as meaningful to them as it is to me. What's meaningful to them is what was meaningful to me when I was a kid, which is hanging out with my friends. You know, my, my parents were ever present and on the periphery. And that's, that's where I'm supposed to be. My relationship with them can become much more intimate as, as an adult, you know, where, where we recognize, uh, first of all, if I'm lucky, they're going to be wiping my mouth. You know, they'll be taking care of me and my decrepitude. And while I have the humility to accept the change in roles and be grateful for that labor because it's awful work. Well, we went all over the place in our conversation, <laughs> as I anticipated. I mean, this yeah. is how the one went the first time. So yeah. I didn't have I had no other illusions. But if we if I'm trying to kind of reorient us and bring us to some type of logical conclusion here as we're running into time. Yeah. Are there things that you want to highlight on the book or do you want to tease out? Yes. The second book that you're working on. Yeah. No, um, thank you. So what, what I want to highlight about the book is that it's a framework for having fun and getting rich. It does not getting rich in the, in the sense of your cash register is not going to ever stop ringing, but it will help with that. I absolutely believe if we honestly help other people, it helps us economically. And then the business is about applying the principles of uh, product management. And a lot of things I've, we've talked about actually are product management principles, empathy and service and um, listening. Those are all very important product management principles. It's about applying those in your organization, whether you have someone with the title of product manager or not. Like I said, I don't think it's essential. Everybody has that. I do think it's, it's particularly helpful in um, SaaS and my Ballywick is healthcare SaaS. And the reason why is, is that for what's supposed to be a helping profession, there's very little empathy in healthcare, whether that's for the people who have to use the software, whether it's for uh, the people who have to deliver the care, 
we are at something of a of a um, empathy crisis in healthcare. You know, even to the point to where when providers provide empathy to the patients coming into their office, they can be second guessed. But you know, I was reading on Google. Uh, I'm not sure that your medical degree got this right. That's a that's a really it's a reality that's a, a humbling or, or aggravating, not humbling, but aggravating part of, of care now. And so anyway, I think that um, I'm wondering again, <laughs> you asked for a conclusion. Well, no, it's good because this to, to kind of dovetail to the earlier part of the conversation, when you talked mm-hmm. about your friend who interviews salespeople, yeah. mm-hmm. your intellectual curiosity is what makes you I think an interesting person to engage with and mm-hmm. what, what motivates your writing in many ways. So, yeah. you know, uh, there are no, you, you don't get a straight answer from Tom. It's okay. No. <laughs> it's okay. That's fine. You know, that what yes or no's and binary, just the yeah. answers would not make for very interesting listening, but we'll, we'll kind of, you know, our, if people are interested in, I definitely recommend signing up to the newsletter. Your curation is really good. The links you send Thank out you. daily is really useful. And we'll include a link to that as well as the book. But if they're interested in learning more about your offerings, the services, working yeah. with you, what's the best yeah. way for them to get in touch? Uh, well, they can go to the website, uh, fortunespath.com. Uh, and they can also send us an email at hello at fortunespath.com. And, uh, or, um, they can send me a, a buzz on LinkedIn and, uh, I'm happy to respond to them. And, uh, so, um, I just want to have conversations, you know, I'm, as, uh, you said, I'm a very curious person and I love learning about people and their businesses. And your dog, you love your dog. <laughs> I love my dog. <laughs> Dude, the dog is highlighted. I'm a dog. I'm, I got a Corgi during COVID and it's, How's it going? it's, well, I tell people, we have a German shepherd as well. She's like a personal oh. protection animal. Yeah. We got it when I was traveling a ton. My wife mm-hmm. wanted something to like keep her company at home. Of course, mm-hmm. we get the shepherd in January of mm-hmm. 2022 mm-hmm. Uh, or 2020. And so mm-hmm. COVID hits. I don't travel. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the corgi was a, was a COVID dog. Yeah. And I tell people that, you know, the shepherd is for protection and the corgi is for like my own just joy (laughs) it is Mm -hmm. it is a a therapy dog but i think Mm -hmm. like i'm the therapy for her so it's an unhealthy relationship my wife we we we, uh we give each other purpose you know that they um uh they want to be with us and we like caring for them well tom i hope you have a great weekend i want to thank you for the time we'll do another one when the next book comes out i look forward to it and uh hopefully we'll be in touch soon It's great to be here. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.